This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 477 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tom Beaver. Now, Tom is the founder of BeaverFit, and that name may sound familiar to you. I had the two founders of the American side of BeaverFit, Mike Taylor and Alex Rudhouse, on episode 457, and they mentioned the original founder, Tom, in the UK. The reason why I wanted to bring you both sides of that story is we constantly are faced with challenges as far as the strength and conditioning element in our professions, police, fire, EMS. And sometimes the challenges are valid, whether it's lack of equipment, whether it's space, and BeaverFit absolutely has solutions to our issues. They have foot lockers that open up into full squat racks and pull-up bars and those kind of things. They have storage units that open up into entire gym that can sit in a parking lot. They have trailers with fitness equipment that turns into a gym. And the other side of the coin that you will hear in this interview is the quality of their gear. Another thing that we're told is you can't leave the gear outside. You can't leave the gear in the bay. Well, they have equipment that is built to survive being dropped in the desert. They have equipment that sits on the deck of ships, warships, in the middle of the ocean, exposed to the elements that are still absolutely fine. So the whole point of this podcast is to bring wellness solutions. And as you know, every so often I come across a company that I'm very passionate about. And BeaverFit is definitely one of them because they truly have the solutions to so many issues that we face. 
So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from the genesis of bridge building in Tom's family, how that evolved into building fitness equipment for the military, his own experience passing the SAS reserve selection process, how they helped during the COVID crisis, and so many more areas. Now, in addition to this episode, BeaverFit UK, BeaverFit USA have both reached out to give you, the audience, a discount on their products. So if you use the code BTS, as in behind the shield, BTS10, you will get 10% off any of their gear on either getbeaverfit.com or here in the US, graymangear.com. So before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now of some of the greatest minds on planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tom Beaver. Enjoy. So, Tom, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much for having me, James. So, you are back where I was born in the UK. Um, so, where exactly are we finding you geographically? Uh, we're in Shropshire, which is a very rural county on the borders of Wales, uh, near Hereford and about an hour away from Birmingham. Beautiful, which is why I mistook your accent for Welsh, but I guess I've been gone, <laughs> gone long enough to be muddled a little bit. Um, so I love to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So um, I was born in Shrewsbury <clears throat> in Shropshire. Um, actually, uh, on the, we, we live on the farm where Beaverfit is uh, headquartered from at the minute in the UK. Um, I have two brothers, Henry, the older brother, and Sam, the younger brother. Um, my, my dad and my granddad weren't, they were originally farmers, but then the business developed into more agricultural, um, fabrication around, uh, around, um, taking down, uh, taking down buildings, putting up buildings, reclamation, anything farmers needed, cattle grids, you name it. And, and that business was run right in the middle of, of where we lived with my grandparents, at the one end of the farm and us at the other end. So if we wanted to spend time with my parents or my dad in particular, we went down the yard, put our overalls on and uh, got into the workshop and welded and got on the grinders. Normally on the grinders, that was a bit safer for us as, as younger guys. Or we went out in the trucks doing the deliveries with my dad. Um, and then, to be honest, we, when I was eight, I went away to boarding school up in the north of Scotland, uh, which was a fantastic experience. Had a lot of, a lot of um, fond memories of that. It was a hugely outward bound school and sports. Everything there was sports. So... For me, rugby was my sport. Uh, played a lot of rugby while I was, while I was up in Scotland. Um, and then in the holidays, we'd come back and it was literally feet on the ground again, get back down the yard and uh, help my dad out and my granddad out with, with, the, with the job in hand. So, um, yeah, very happy uh, childhood. Beautiful. Well, it's funny, there's a parallel with mine. I grew up on a farm too, but my dad was a veterinarian. 
or a vet as we say right, yeah um you say vet over here people think it's a veteran um yeah. but uh same thing if i wanted to spend time with him i went on house calls with him i went up and you know helped operate on a horse and you know so we'd stop there's horses guts everywhere and have a sandwich and then get back to it so i can 100 percent relate to not only the farm life but you know getting stuck in to spend time with your parent absolutely yeah no it was good times and we um you know that was the way it was if if you want to spend time and in fact my friends would come and stay with us and uh, they'd be put to work as well so it was either like the ones who who wanted to get stuck in would come across and the other ones would avoid it but uh it was it was good fun and, uh, <laughs> we had a lot of t- you know we we were also very privileged with having quad bikes and having you know ability to go out shooting and things like that as well so uh, it was all all out, outward bounds and outdoors beautiful now i know obviously we're going to talk about um SAS selection but when you look back at that childhood, not only the the manual labor of you know helping your dad, the British weather, um, how much did that factor in that kind of upbringing to your success in the selection process? To be honest, it was um, <clears throat> that was a lot of it, a lot of sort of grit and determination. Um, but if I sort of rewind a little bit before that, I, I played a lot of rugby um, up to a sort of under 21 Scotland while I was up there, but I also played under 16s and schoolboys through. So I had a lot of inbuilt um, ability to get up in the morning and train hard. And, you know, that sort of, that sort of uh, routine and practice was, was very inbred to me. So I, I knew what I was doing there with it. And I think by the time I sort of came across to the SAS selection, which was actually my final year of university, I wasn't too sure what I was going to do. I'd had a couple of injuries playing rugby, um, I knew I had a little bit of an itch to do a bit of military something. And if I'm being honest, it was more of an experience. I, I got told by a good friend, you know, read a book called uh, The Quiet Soldier by Adam Ballinger, and it was basically around the selection process. Um, and so that's what I did. And I thought, you know, this, is, this sounds uh, really interesting as much as anything. I wonder whether that's something I could take on and I could do. So I uh, got a contact, uh, two, three SAS, which is one of the reserve units up in Scotland, um, got in touch with them. And before I knew it, just as a civvy with zero experience, zero uh, knowledge of, of military, uh, was on selection within about three weeks. And it was a year-long course. I went through the year-long, and at the end of it, didn't go in. It wasn't, it wasn't for me. It wasn't, it wasn't that it wasn't for me at the time, but it was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. Um, I'd always, my entire time, wanted to play rugby. And then now, now I was with this sort of, dilemma but it was also the reserves and no disrespect they do an incredible job but it's for me it was more I'm at a time in my life I want to take something on full-time so it was either go and join it full-time or I had an opportunity to join the family business so at the time then my older brother had come into the family business um, Henry and formed Beaver Bridges with my dad and so I thought you know what this is going to be a a great a great roller coaster of events and let's just go and join the family business and and um, he can take care of the sales. He can t- take care of that side of it. And I'm going to join the sort of back end engine room and uh, do the welding and, and that kind of stuff. So had a lot of fun doing that. And that's kind of how my sort of uh, military experience was. And it was, like I say, it was a taster. Now with the mental side as well, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty unusual story that someone goes through a whole selection process of that and then chooses after completing it to to you know walk in a different route but i think it's amazing um with the mental toughness side again was it the 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 wake up and grind element and and also you know the physically grinding when you're on the farm 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly a part of my life, you know, now I do, I do a lot of that stuff and I always had done, um, you know, I was a very routine orientated person. So um, <clears throat> it was, I think the selection side, it just interested me. It was, it was something that was, that was um, there and I wanted to go out and go out and have a, have a taste of it and see what it was like. Um, and to be honest now, you know, coming away from that, I've, I've done a, quite a lot of endurance events and that's kind of my hit now is I go out and push myself on, on the hills and do the endurance side of the house, um, which I find is a great, great release, great way to get a bit of time away from the business a little bit, great bit of, away from the family a little bit um, and a bit of my own time, which is, which is always important as well. Where, how did your dad get into that? What was the reverse engineer, the origin of that in the family? <clears throat> so, so yeah, my dad and my granddad, they were cattle farmers. They, they did um, milk dairy farming um, from the very farm, farm we're on at the minute. And I think, to be honest, they just didn't, it wasn't big enough. They didn't have enough, um, didn't have enough land for it. We've got 100 acres here, but for a dairy, we probably need a fair bit more than that to make a good living out of it. So they just sort of died, um, started to deserve, um, go into other things, you know, take on a bit of welding, take on a little bit of, buying and selling. And that, that was kind of how it happened. It was a bit of a stumbled into it. And um, they saw there was a big opening for, you know, buying buildings, bringing them back, um, doing them up and then selling them again. So that became a bit, big part of their their uh, job. And then that really took over. So, you know, we tend to spend a lot of times, it could have been on the side of the road somewhere, the, you know, a Northern Relief Road, um, dad would go there and buy all of the surplus equipment which was on site we'd go there and pack it up bring it back we've got a good a good yard here that we could bring it back to and then he would sell it on to other farmers so it was a very agricultural based setup now this seems to again to be a very entrepreneurial mindset and, and you hear a lot of the businesses like blockbuster or some of these other big companies that we are told fail because they didn't adapt and move with the time so you have a dairy farmer who realized that the fabrication was going to be where they could you know innovate and like you said they're they're being very creative in the way they're getting materials and what they're building where did that kind of entrepreneurial mindset come from that you know allows your dad to be that um progressive whereas other businesses around maybe failed i think if it's to be honest it was uh it was more of a survival mode you know it was one of those situations where he he knew he needed to grow uh, and the growth wasn't necessarily in the dairy for us. So he looked around and, and there was other opportunities. Um, and, and back then, you know, especially here in the UK, there was lots of little uh, farms that would make up um, all over the place. And so, you know, a lot of these guys needed little bits doing, whether that was uh, making trailers, whether that was repairing buckets, whether that was, you know, putting up small buildings. And it just found a little bit of a gap in the market and, and grew on that. Um, and I think, you know, that, that was just something that he spotted and, and went for. Beautiful. Well, walk me through you joining the company and then your very first rig that you built, built yourself and then the, kind of how that then became op- the key to the door to equipping the tactical athletes. So, um, so when I joined the business, it was a little bit of a, to be honest, it was a, bring brought right back down to earth because I went from living in Edinburgh with a whole lot of rugby guys and my girlfriend um, to coming back and living with my grandma on the farm. So my girlfriend stayed up in Scotland and, and I, and I, uh, and I came down and lived with my grandma in the farm that's right opposite the, that farmhouse, which is opposite the house today. Um, 
unfortunately, my granddad had just passed. So it kind of worked in that respect. But um, I came in. We weren't a huge business at the time with, with what we were doing. My brother had joined the business and they, my brother and my dad were just beginning to get the Beaver Bridges side of the house going. So they were just beginning to concentrate on bridges, um, which seemed to be just, a, again, another gap in the market rather than doing a bit of everything. It was more like just specialize in one thing and, and be really good at it. So when I came back in, I, I really didn't want to come in and step on Henry's toes in any way. So I looked at where, where he was and I thought, you know, well, he's doing the sales and he's good at that and he's out there doing that with my dad. I'll, uh, I'll learn to do the welding. So I went into the fab shop, uh, became a coded welder, um, took all my certifications in that, took all my certifications for spray painting as well, um, and, and basically built, built bridges with, with, uh, with a team full of guys. And then when I was 21, got my truck license, my class one for heavy goods, and um, went out on the road. And actually, Henry did join me on that. And we went and installed the bridges. And that, that was it. And it just sort of uh, came across, you know, that was, that was the sort of next step. And then in 2004, my cousin, who uh, we were very close to at the time, he was at Sandhurst and he was doing his final, um, his final, in his final uh, term in Sandhurst, they go away and do an expedition. And unfortunately something happened and he went missing while well, he was out, out in, it was in Chamonix in France and he went missing. Um, and it was a devastating blow to the family. It was just one of those things where, you know, like someone missing is, there's nothing worse really. And my, you know, my uncle, my aunt, my uncle and my aunt obviously was, really bad time for them. We were very close to Blake as well. Um, we went out and joined the search for Blake. Um, and I came back and I thought, you know, I want to try and do something for missing people. It's a, it's an horrendous, um, thing to go through, to have to live through. So at the time, um, the ultra running, I just started, <clears throat> I'd been, I'd been doing a few marathons, uh, for a while. So I did, um, one in the Sahara desert for racing the planets called, um, it was just the Sahara race, but it was 150 miles in five, five days across the Sahara desert. Uh, actually thoroughly enjoyed it, raised a bit of money for missing people, thought, you know, this is great. Um, did quite well as well from it and then came back and uh, carried on building bridges back with the family business. And then I thought, you know, I need to do something a little bit that's going to push me a little bit harder than that. And I came across, I just, at that point, started doing Ironman triathlons. Uh, I'd run my first double Ironman triathlon. And I came across this thing called the, the Enduroman Arch to Arc, which is 90 mile run from, um, from Dover, from sorry, the Marble Arch to Dover, then swim the English Channel and then cycle to the Arc de Triomphe. And I thought this is ideal because it starts in England, finishes in France where Blake went missing and has some real like, you know, there's something behind it. I can get really stuck into this. It's a, it's a difficult event as well. Um, so what I did is... My dad is uh, notorious. He's a very hard worker, workaholic, constant. He wouldn't uh, appreciate me going off training all the time. So didn't have a huge amount of time. So I built a rig, put it in the field opposite the offices. And little did I know what rigs really were, if I'm being honest, it was just offcuts of a bridge. And what I'd do in my, in my uh, lunchtime would go across, across the bridge, uh, which we had a stream, so across the bridge again, um, and do a bit of a workout, hit workout, um, just for conditioning. And then I ran the marble arc, this, this arch to arc, completed that. It took uh, 84 hours continuous, uh, and I was the fifth guy in the world to complete it. But it was a, a really, you know, strong event to do for, for my cousin. 
and and for missing people. And um, yeah, that's basically how I built my first rig. Just sort of stumbled across it. It was not not meant. It wasn't meant for a for anything to go on and sell, or it wasn't meant for a, to build a business out of. It was purely for a passion and for to keep myself fit. Yeah, well, that's a the awful story about losing Blake, and I'm sorry to hear that. Um, but I mean. I've had a lot of high-level athletes on. Uh, you remind me actually of uh, Ross Edgley, who I believe swam around the entire British Isles. But um, to run 90 miles, then swim the English Channel, then cycle the way up to Arc de Triomphe, that, that sounds like one of the most intense endurance events that I've been told on here. So, again, you had a background, you know, playing rugby. You obviously had the farm life mentality, but... That's four solid days of grind. Again, what was that self-talk when you were halfway across the channel or, you know, halfway up um, towards Paris when, when I'm sure you must have been wanting to stop? Well, to be honest, uh, for me, I had a very like, I'll get through the run and I've just got to get down to Dover. Uh, and I think that took about 18 hours. And then I got into the water um, and swam and it was horrendous conditions, absolutely horrendous. And I'll, I'll be honest, I suffered badly with being sick. So had to had to deal with being sick all the time as well while crossing crossing the channel. Um, but I was on for a really good time and I got within 200 meters of the French coast in 12 hours. And um, and then the tide change. And then I had to wait another eight hours of, of swimming against the tide. Oh, my before God. I got in um, so it was that was horrendous. And then I came in had a couple of hours getting myself sorted and got on a bike, uh, actually fell asleep while cycling, um, cra- crashed the bike, um, but then got back on and, and finished the job off. But the, the bike was lovely. I mean, the, we- it was, the, weather, was, the weather was nice and it was uh, a great end, end to the uh, event, but the swim, it was all about the swim. Everything was the swim and uh, it, was, it was as bad as I thought it would be. <laughs> that sounds awful. Now, speaking of your kind of endurance fundraising I saw another one you did for Rhinos, and I don't know. I literally just saw like a, a post on social media, so I haven't researched to see if this is correct. But from what it said, the white rhino is now officially extinct. The the last male has died, and there's only two, you know, pregnant uh, non-pregnant females that we have left. So, how did you get into the the rhino side? So, to be brutally honest, I uh, when I finished selection that gave me a real insight of, you know, I like pushing myself. That was what really gave me that, that, um, that drive to get out and, and really do a bit of a solo sport rather than playing rugby, which had always been team guys. Um, and I thought, you know, marathons weren't as big as they are today. And uh, the London marathon was the one to start with. So I thought I'd, I'd do the London marathon first. I went to try and get onto the London marathon and couldn't get on the ballot was full. So Honestly, I just looked through the uh, the charities and I thought this is this is a great charity, Save the Rhino, really <clears throat> worth worth um, you know making us uh, raising some money for. So I uh, I rung them up, said you know I'd like to raise some money for Save the Rhino and, and join your marathon team. And the lady said you know no problem, but do you want to wear the suit? And I thought, well yeah, absolutely, I want to wear the suit. I, I'd never even thought about what the suit looked like until I rocked up. <laughs> And then they had this massive suit that went over the top of you uh, with about this huge head that hooked onto two hooks. Um, so, yeah, my first marathon was in the rhino suit uh, through London. It took about four and a half hours, but it was, it was really gr- grueling, to be honest. But, uh, 
been a glut of a punishment. I did it again in New York, took the rhino suit out there and uh, ran the New York marathon in it as well. Beautiful. I'm glad I asked that question now. I can only imagine <laughs> what that must have been like for your first marathon. Um, so you have made this rig um, and, you know, you're, you're preparing for the race. So how did that then lead to, um, you know, beginning to equip the British uh, armed forces? So basically, I, when, I, when I finished the race, came back into just uh, – just building bridges. It wasn't just building bridges. You know, go back to my day job, which was building bridges. Um, and CrossFit was just beginning to bubble, I guess. It was just beginning to come across the, into the surfaces. And it would have been about 2009 at this time. Um, one of my good friends who owns CrossFit Shropshire, uh, Graham Carlos, is also a firefighter. He, um, he came down and saw the rig and went, mate, can you build me one of these? You know, this looks ideal. Uh, I just need one for the, for the gym. So no problem, just built him, a, built him a rig, put it outside his gym. It's still there today, actually. Um, and, then, and then from there, I thought, you know, this, this is interesting and put out a few little bits that are on, on the internet um, that we build, build rigs and ended up building a few for CrossFit gyms. But it was in between building bridges. Uh, in fact, I, I remember one time putting one in for CrossFit Central London and we, we had put in a really beautiful um, arch bridge down at Sion Park, a park outside London. And um, in the, so that went in. That was the priority job. And then afterwards, we had the rig to go into, which was central London, which was just a nightmare. So myself and another lad went in, uh, but the rig was still wet because we'd spray painted it. You know, we, we learned so many lessons. We hadn't we powder coated it, barely went together, but it, it did the job. And, and he had it for a long time. And he actually had a second one with us as well. Um, but so I, so I built a few for CrossFit gyms and then um, <clears throat> came across a couple of military guys and, and I had a, obviously had a big passion for the military. And, you know, I was just speaking to them and saying, look, I reckon I could design something here that is a pretty straightforward, simple, durable rig uh, that could live in all elements because we could, we could um, galvanize it, galvanize it and then powder coat it. Um, and more than that, it could really be simple to take away around wherever the guys and the troops go around the world. Um, and, and we could make it very versatile. So we could have squat racks on either side. Um, it could have pull-up bars and it could have like a, a monkey bar, um, sorry, a wings on the side of it as well, where you could hang uh, rings from and things like that. And so through a few contracts, managed to get, um, be able to get, get a, appointment, I guess, to go and see some one of the UKSF bases with this rig. Um, so it's quite nerve wracking. Went into this base, uh, put it up in their gymnasium and actually out came a whole load of squadron guys and I had to present and I'd never presented in my life um, about rigs. I hadn't even, you know, I was a bridge builder, fabricator. I was not a salesman. And so <clears throat> to be honest, I thought, you know, forget this presenting. Why don't we just work out? So I just did three minutes of um, burpee wing climbs where you climb up the wing and you drop off it just to sort of let them feel, feel how sturdy the rig was, let them get an, uh, an understanding of very high intensity, what a quick workout could do for them and grip, grip, grip strength and things like that. Um, and as I looked at it, you know, they did the workout. It was their calluses all um, opened up, blood all over the rig. I thought, oh, that's it. Messed this one up really badly. And um, off the back of them, they actually ordered three straight away. So uh, I went back and at the time we weren't laser cutting. 
I had to pillar drill each hole. You know, they took hours. So there was no money in these. We were, we were making no money out of them at all. But I, I just got a feeling that, you know, this, that there is an opportunity here. Um, went, delivered the three, put them into this certain base, and then went back to building uh, bridges for the family business. And then I got a phone call from one of the guys down in Colchester at the parachute regiment saying, look, I've seen this thing at such and such base and really like it. Firstly, I don't really know what it is. Tell me about it. But I think it's going to be really awesome for the guys. Could you build me some? I've got a little bit of pot of money here. Um, so built him one, took it down to Colchester. Um, and, you know, the guys down, the parachute regiment guys down there started, started using it. Um, so, you know, I thought this is, this is, there could be something here. And I had a chat with dad and my dad's still involved in Beaver Fit heavily at the minute. Um, and I said to him, you know, look, I know, I know Henry and you've got the bridge thing going on and I love doing all the bridges, but uh, fitness is my passion. That's what I'd really like to do. And I think there's a real opening for something really simple and effective and durable for the, for the military. We don't, need to, we don't need to design something for commercial and then spray it green and say it's for the military. Let's design it actually for what it's meant to be. Let's take it, you know, give me an opportunity to go around some of the bases and, um, and see if there really is a market and opportunity for this. So basically I had one of the young 16-year-old apprenticeship lads uh, with me. We had a van. We built this same rig that we had just presented, um, which we named the commander rig at that point. We hadn't, we hadn't actually uh, officially come up with Beaver Fit, so it was just the commander rig. We literally went around for about two years knocking on doors, bases, uh, and presenting and working out with the guys and listening to their feedback and, you know, just getting to know them and seeing if there really was, uh, um, you know, a good opportunity for simple functional fitness training for the, for the military. So what were you seeing in these facilities before? And the reason I asked that, you know, we're, I'm assuming you're a little bit younger than me, but our generation growing up, um, whether in the tactical athlete space, you know, a lot of the tools that were put in fire stations, and I'm sure probably the military too, were, you know, the, the machines, the, the bodybuilding kind of philosophy that, that a lot of us grew up with. So what were you seeing in their gyms? And then, and then what were they liking about the rigs that you were putting in? There was, I think the best way to describe it was, you know, the gyms were very globo style gyms, actually very, um, individual, um, individual isolation muscle group type machines, uh, and then a lot of treadmills, a lot of bikes. And I think the big thing was from ours, you know, you could, you could put this commander rig in and you could train 10 guys off this commander rig. Uh, you could do a, do a much simpler workout and you could get really strong effects from it very quickly. As we all know how, how, uh, CrossFit has, change the way people think about training for the good. It's really has done a lot of, a lot of good, whether people are massive CrossFit pro or not. Um, but the way it has got people moving is incredible. And I think that's the big thing. It got people thinking about, Oh, you know, actually we do lift a lot of things. We've got to get strong in the back. We've got to bend our knees. We do need to pull ourselves up. We do need to, it was more relevant movements for their jobs and their tasks. Whereas before it was more, you know, bodybuilding biceps and, biceps and back and chest and, you know, triceps type movements, um, which is fine if that's what, you know, the beach muscles you want to look at, but actually more for every day working and training as, you know, being a good soldier, that's kind of the more they needed. And I think people started working out like this and realized that it was effective and how effective was basically sold it. 
Yeah, I mean, I can attest as well. Like I did the, when I say bodybuilding, I did those machines. I never, ever got big, never, ever got beach muscles or anything. But when I started doing CrossFit, and I still do it to this day, like I combine it with Strongman and some other stuff, but um, I would never train for a Spartan race or, you know, um, specific, sports-specific stuff. And it would always play out well, whether it was jiu-jitsu, whether it was in a, a fire, whether it was on, you know, a mud run. So, you know, that that kind of functional fitness, although it's not perfect, and that's why I like the strongman stuff too, um, that was eye-opening for me. And for there you are as well as, a, you know, an elite rugby player, an endurance athlete, and, and, you know, you also found benefit from that too. So, yeah, there's definitely some haters out there, and I get it more from the sport CrossFit side, but, I mean, as, as a, a nucleus of philosophy, I think it's incredibly effective for our people. Yeah, 100% there, James, yeah. Um, I think, and it, it's so, so quick, it doesn't have to be long time spent at the gym either. And I think that's, you know, these guys don't have massive amounts of time in the day. So going in and getting effective workouts and being able to go back to what they're doing, I think is huge. And that has that crossover with, you know, for myself, I do um, a lot of CrossFit style working out as well and then do a lot of endurance running. And I, th- I find it really effective as long as there is a balance. And sometimes if I tip too much and get too, too heavy into the weights, then I find it does slow me down and affect me. Um, but I'm quite a big guy for running anyway. So uh, I, speed is never, never a massive thing for me. Um, but yeah, no, I fully agree with you there. Now, the uh, thing that you talked about was uh, being able to, to deal with all elements. And that's a huge one too. One of the issues that we see, two big issues that we see, and I, I spoke to Mike and Alex about the same thing. Space is one, and we'll get to that in a moment too. But the other one is just durability. So a lot of these low bid barbells, you know, even if people are trying to lean towards a CrossFit, you know, these rigs and things, you put them outside, they're rusting, you know, within, within days sometimes, you know. So with the fabrication side, what did you do that allows this equipment to sit, whether it's in the back of a fire station or whether it's in, you know, the desert in Afghanistan? Well, the first thing we did is really take the, the bridge mentality. So everything we did was five mil, five mil thick steel. So, you know, competitors were coming into the market with two or three mil. Nothing wrong with that, but, but these were durable, heavy bits of kit. And then on top of that, we hot dip, hot, hot dip galvanized everything. So, you know, that was a bit of a farmer mentality, I guess, putting it through that. So it's, it lives outside. It doesn't rust. Um, and, and we had welders that had been building, you know, huge span bridges as well that were welding these things up. So our welding, I think was better than everyone else's with it, the, um, extra thick steel, and then going through the, the process for weatherproofing. Those were, those were the three, three main things. Um, and you know, we, we've put out rigs that were 10 years ago when we started the company and they're, they've been used heavily by, uh, troops all over the world and they're still, still, uh, in one piece now getting used. You know, some of the, the uh, powder coating comes off, but the galvanizing underneath stays stays there and gives a good 20-year span. So it uh, makes a massive difference. I mean, that's one of our big things. In our, once we put our rig in or we put a container there, it's the long long uh, life that it's got, and it will just remain um, sometimes for, for not not for our own benefit as BeaverFit because, you know, we can't go back and replace these things because they are so solid, which is exactly what, what the whole idea was. Yeah, and I think that's what I see over and over again. Like the best companies don't want the stuff to fail and have to keep, you know, purchasing more. You know, you, the, there might be a slightly higher ticket on the front door, but there's 
false economy is so rife at the moment. You know, everyone's going for the low bid, and especially in my profession. And what I think I told Mike and Alex as well, what breaks my heart is you'll get a few voices in most departments that are really trying to push the wellness side. They understand not only the the ability to do our job, but also the long-term effects, you know, the, the reduction in chronic disease and that kind of thing. And they finally get a budget, but then whether it's through the bureaucracy of the department or, you know, maybe just poor choice themselves, a lot of times they buy the kind of low bid stuff. And then a year later, and I'm saying this because I've seen this over and over again, it's falling apart. And now they're having to, to, to beg for another budget to replace this stuff. So to me, understanding that it might be a little bit more at the front door and comparatively, I mean, you know, you guys are pretty much on par with a lot of the stuff that's out there, but, um, that that's an investment that, is going to save you hand over fist year after year as it's still sitting, you know, in that bay, in that police station, wherever it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if I'm being honest, sometimes, you know, as a business, you get disappointed. Someone comes in and outbids you on something because they're a bit lower uh, price. But normally you, you sit patient and one, two years down the line, something's happened to that bit of equipment and we come and replace it. Um, and that, that's happened a few times, to be honest, and it's, you know, but be your dead right. You know, it has got a little bit of a price to the beginning of it, but uh, there's a lot, also a lot of with our stuff that it looks very simple, but there's been huge amounts of design, hours, efforts, um, IP gone into it as well. You know, and that's a front end cost that's constantly there, and we're always evolving it. it might be little tweaks, um, and normally these tweaks, to be honest, comes from the customer. They'll say, this is, it'd be better if you had this or whatever it is. And, you know, if someone comes up with something that makes sense, nine, nine out of 10 of our products has been led by customer. Um, first, we've come up with a concept and it's been created and then it gets tweaked to sort of fit their, their abilities and their needs. Yeah, well, that's another reason. One of the sponsors on the show is 511, um, and they do exactly the same thing. They go to the firefighters, they go to the police officers and the members of the military and be like, all right, what, what, what do you need from your boots? What do you need from your clothes? And it's exactly what companies should do. Ask the people that are actually doing the job. Um, one of the most valid reasons, not excuses, but reasons for um, some fire stations, police stations not having... Um, an aggressive fitness program is, is lack of space. You know, especially you mentioned, you know, take a fire station in the middle of London. I'm sure there's no room for expansion in, you know, in uh, Whitehall or wherever. Um, so one of the, the reasons why I love what you guys do is you bring solutions as long as you've got, you know, either a bay to slide a, a box in and out or a couple of parking spaces for one of the bigger units. You have solutions to that problems. And this isn't a sales pitch. This is someone who, you know, I, I'm bringing bringing a solution to the reason that I see over and over again that that stations aren't allowed to have fitness equipment. So tell me about some of the space solutions for whether it's fire or military um, when they don't have the actual ability to have a full time gym in a room. Yeah, that's a good question. So probably one of our um, initial products was called the Tactical Gym Box, sometimes just known as the Gym Box. Uh, that was designed purely for the Royal Navy because the Navy um, got onto functional functional training, functional fitness quite a lot quicker than the Army just because it's a, a lot smaller machine. Um, and they realized the benefits of this. And we, we kitted out and we worked with them a lot on their on their gyms. We put container gyms into their, uh, into their bases like out in the Middle East and places like that. Um, but they also wanted to have it on their, on their ships. And 
initially we were like, you know, that's no easy, no problem. We'll just put a, uh, a rig right on your deck and you guys can just pop out, train on it and, you know, go back to doing what you're doing. Uh, that, that got uh, kiboshed quite quickly by the captain of one of the ships in particular. It's like, I, I don't want to look at some ugly rig out on my deck. It might do the job good. It might, you know, train the lads well, but I don't want to be looking at that all the time. So what we did is we came up with a, um, basically a box a comp- um, called a tactical gym box. And it's the same width as a barbell. Uh, and outside of that, you, you open it up and you can build a rig out of it. It's got wheels on the side, so you can just pull it into position. And on the, in the, on the Navy ships, they just strapped it down, put the, pull the pull-up bar out of it, dip bar, uh, jump platform on the back of it. And they could train around the side of these, probably 10 guys, so they'd have a few of these. So that's what we came up with. Um, and the Royal Navy put it on every one of their warships at the time. And uh, it was you know, massively popular. And outside of that, Actually, all the reserve bases up and down the country, they, they've ordered, they've had one like a clean throughout each and every one of them for the same reasons, because they don't have huge amounts of um, space and, and areas. So with this, it could just be put into a cupboard, pulled out, set up, do their workout from it, do their fist training, and then put it away and, and put it back again. Um, and actually, I think some of, the, some of the fire stations have adopted this as well. So that's been a really good... Um, really good bit of equipment for the people who need space saving equipment. Beautiful. And then the other um, option, obviously, this requires a little bit of space in a parking lot or somewhere, are the actual shipping containers. So tell me about that option. So <clears throat> the shipping container came around because um, as I was going around the basis, this is really early days, uh, sort of presenting this commander rig. Um, everyone said, you know, look, when we go on deployments, we need, we need to take accessories as well. We need to take barbells, kettlebells, sandbags, all this other stuff. So, um, which all made sense, you know, in my logical head, it was like, just put it on a pallet, put the other, put, put the rig down, put it on a pallet, put everything else on a pallet, ship it to where you want to. Um, but that's just been a bit naive and, and not realizing, you know, the logistics of messing around, you know, the one pallet goes missing over here, one pallet goes missing over there. And I think that's what everyone was getting at. Um, and at the time, I was building a wall-mounted rig for, um, it was HMS Nelson down in Portsmouth. And we had a container in the in our workshop and just lent the container again, sorry, lent the rig against the container uh, while having a cup of tea and thought, perfect, let's just build a rig, uh, build a rig that comes out of the container, goes onto the side of the container with all the accessories, um, packs away really nicely, and, you know, you've got a gym in a box and put all your accessories in there, shut the doors. It could go exactly as you say. You could put it on a parking parking spot space. You could put it, you know, around any anywhere that you've got a little bit of space to put a container, 10-foot container, 20-foot container, just dump them in. Um, they take about an, an hour to build maybe. Um, so really, really simple. And at the time when we came up with this idea, um, we presented it to, in the UK, there's, a, there's an army school of physical training for the army guys. And we took it down to Aldershot to this and presented it to a whole load of guys um, and showed them, you know, look, guys, genuinely not a sales pitch. We'd like you to have a look at it. it tell us what you think. If you don't like it, you know, we won't, we won't keep bringing it out to show you guys. If you think that needs adjustments or tweaks, then please let us know. So we, we set it up, showed them. And this was back in 2012, just when the Olympic Games um, was set up, was set in London. And G4S at the time were doing the uh, security, but G4S, for some reason, it, it, something happened and they had to pull away from it. 
And the army got pulled in at the last minute to do all the security for the London Olympics. So it was just, it was a purely lucky time for us. They got one of the guys there said, look, Tom, what about just dropping that container into the Olympic Games? They don't have any training, training space. There's 3,000 troops, there's three months. It could go through a proper uh, trial, if you like, for, <clears throat> for um, deployment, exactly as it would be on a deployment. So we took it to this uh, camp which was, uh, outside London called Hainault, set it up, uh, and they did three months. And off the back of that, it was, it was deemed absolutely fit for purpose. Everyone who used it had to, do, um, had to take, take, fill out a form to say you know, what they thought about it, what they thought would be better, all the rest of it. Uh, and it came back and it was very minor tweaks, to be honest, and they, they ordered 25 straight after that, um, of which we thought was brilliant. We'd, we'd cracked it. You know, these things were going to go all over the place. Um, and then what happened was one of the units went to take it abroad. And it has to go through RAF Bryce Norton. And it went to RAF Bryce Norton. And uh, little did we know there was a thing called um, a JAD2 Joint Evaluation Air Task Air Evaluation Unit which has to like have a tie down scheme. So if these things go in the back of a C C-100 or, or whatever aircraft or underslung by helicopter, everything has to be weighted evenly and all has to be tied down. So luckily for us at the time, there was a guy, a young captain out of uh, PGHQ who really into his physical training, loved it and thought, you know, for welfare of troops, we need these things. These things need to go out to support the soldiers all over the world. They need to be easily deployed. So actually, he sponsored um, all of our equipment to go through this uh, JAD2 certification. So we came back to the drawing boards, put these tie-down schemes into everything, made sure it was all evenly distributed the weight was inside the container. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really right place at the right time. But uh, that's how the container gym came around. Yeah, it's amazing to hear. And also, I mean, when you're talking about putting rigs on ships, you know, you've got the seawater exposure there, and then you're talking about the deserts. So... You know, we, there's lots of other companies out there, and, and obviously they're very, very well um, used and loved in in gym settings, in you know, in collegiate gyms. But I think it's pretty safe to say that your stuff has, has definitely been tested in a lot more extreme, austere conditions than than most. And I think that's very important for the people listening to this too. Like like I said, if it can just sit in a, in the back of a fire station, you know, out in the elements, and still be, you know completely functional that is absolutely huge because most of us like, we're not even allowed to put equipment in the bay because of the exhaust from from the diesel and you know you don't want to be in there anyway but be able to either pull in or out you know a gym box or even better having an actual um uh, container out there and where i coach in my crossword gym we have a container in the back of ours and that's where i keep all my strongman stuff that i coach with so i can attest how easy it is to go in and out and pull gear out as well so Again, if people have the newer stations with the stuff already, and we'll talk about Greyman gear in a second, then obviously you've got options for that. But I think so many departments, um, that is the excuse that's given to, to the men and women. Well, sorry, we don't have space. Well, we have a solution for you. So, um, and I think hearing that story and hearing where your equipment's been deployed, I think is, is very powerful and people trusting, like you said, that initial investment, knowing it's going to be there. Now, now just on that subject for a second, what about, um, you know, the, the, um, standing behind the product, the warranty element of that? If someone does purchase kind of what, what's the company philosophy? So on our seal work, we stand by the product for 10 years, or lifetime guarantee, to be honest. We, I think Mike and Alex have alluded to this on their, on their um, time with you a couple of weeks ago. 
you know, we, we stand by the products um, and we'll, we'll look after the kit and we'll look after the equipment. So if people have issues, they get in touch and when we deal with it. So of course we have it out there and we've got the, the guarantees and the, and the warranties as you would have. But, you know, as a company, we've got a very strong ethos that we've just got to make sure that it's been used and make sure if there's an issue, we'll, we'll look after it and, and take care of it. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned Mike and Alex. So what's great about this as well is that you're in the UK, you know, and, and supplying the European side. Mike and Alex um, picked up the reins here in the US. So what is beautiful is that most people listening will have access to this as well. So tell me from your perspective about them coming into the picture. So um met Mike and Alex when they were working at TRX. Um, we, we had just, it was, to be honest, I think it was 2012, we had just launched the container gym. They had seen this product. Um, obviously, they were selling the straps into the defense part of, the, of TRX. They did TRX Tactical. Um, and we got on really well. They, they contacted me through one of the guys who was working in the UK. Uh, we went out there, and I think they had already, knowing those guys, gone out and, ha- and taken the product and put it in front of a few customers just to see what the potential was. Um, so I went out and, and met them. We got on really well. And um, then I could see the difference. There's a huge difference, obviously, with the, with the US military and, and the UK and the European militaries, one for the size and two the funds and in the potential to move, take this thing to another whole level. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a strong time. We, I think for us all, it was about, do we get on with each other? Do we trust each other? Are we going to work hard together? And, and with, our, with our main vision of ensuring the customer gets what they want. We tick the boxes and all of that together. Um, and yeah, there, there was there was an opportunity, I think, to sell for the US Marine Corps through um, through the company they were working for at that time, which we did one one order together with. And um, it was a it was a strange fulfillment because we did we did all the manufacturing here in Shropshire and then we would ship it around to the West Coast um, Long Beach in California. And then in, the, in, in Long Beach, there was a container yard where all the containers were purchased and all the accessories would come into. And then we, uh, we actually had a great couple of weeks together, um, you know, putting these containers together to go off to the U.S. Marine Corps. And um, that was sort of just, we got really bonded, I guess, as we, as we did that process and thought, you know, why don't we do this together? We, why don't we set up in, 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 uh, in Reno, Nevada? The, the guys both live out of uh, Lake Tahoe. So it just seemed to make complete sense. I was uh, very jealous of where they lived and their lifestyle and, uh, and thought actually, but, you know, let's, let's go for this. Let's pull it together and uh, start, start this up. So we had a time for the first couple of years where we were doing a lot of the design work from the UK. We were still doing the manufacturing from the UK. Then we'd ship it over and, and do these assembly points. Um, but obviously that was never going to be the, the case for very long because of the demand and the, and the volumes that started to appear very quickly. Um, and then the team slowly but surely came on board and, you know, Mike and Alex have, uh, have grown that company amazingly well, to be honest. Yeah, well, one thing that was also, I think, as powerful is um, they were obviously Navy Riverines, which is a, a unique story in itself, hearing that stood up from the ground up and then ultimately, you know, torn down again, sadly. But the veteran element as far as within the company, is that something that you have in the UK as well? Um, we do, but not to the same extent to the US. Um, we, we've had, we've had, and we have a few vets that have joined the firm um, and you know have come along and done their bit and, and worked with us, and they, and they still do. Um, and we, we always, you know, encourage to work with with vets, guys coming out of the military or the fire service or or the police forces. 
Um, but just we, just we don't have it quite as strong as they do over here. Yeah, beautiful. All right, well, then the other side of the, the company now is Gray Man Gear. It's interesting even seeing some of the companies you've aligned with. I saw Goruck was a new one um, that you're working with. That's another amazing group that I've um, you know, had on the show, multiple people. Uh, so tell me about, again, the, the Gray Man Gear, but also, again, the construction standards and that kind of thing that makes them different from maybe, you know, going on Amazon and buying the same kind of stuff for, you know, cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Well, Greyman gear was designed to go inside the containers. So it's all the, the bumper plates and the bars, uh, the sandbags, um, you know, the kettlebells. And it's all US made, um, first and foremost, uh, super strong and robust and designed for its, for its job, um, which is to, you know, be used over and over by soldiers in or, or firemen or you know first responders in in their facilities um and 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 have a product that they can rely on um you touched on on go ruck and you know we started with go ruck and with the uk distributors for go ruck um and you know it's really amazing even even in the uk and i, and I say that in the nicest way but the following they've got and the the sort of you know the amount of people that know go ruck and it's just a real strong brand with uh and they've done exceptionally well with it so you know we're, we're pleased to be working with those guys as well and i think they have the same sort of values as, as we have from beaverford yeah no jason and emily are phenomenal and, and rich i mean everyone everyone that i have from there and again we're talking about companies that are started by people you know that like you trained with special forces or or actually served and i think that's such a an important perspective like of course you know business people can can absolutely be connected. I think 511 is a good example of that. But when you have people in the tactical space, especially this, this kind of stuff that are creating the, the equipment for us to be better at our job. I mean, I think that's a huge thing, whether it's go right, whether it's in a beaver fit that, you know, it, the, the bottom line isn't the, the main focus that you understand that these men and women are putting their lives on the line and want them to, to perform at the highest level. So, I mean, that's, that's what I, that's what I see with, with you guys. Now, another very important thing to me personally is that altruistic element too. And I see you closely aligned with Reorg. I had Mark Omrod on here. I'm hoping to get Sam on one day. Yeah. But for everyone listening, Reorg is a, um, a, Nonprofit in the UK focused on uh, the Royal Marines and uses a lot of jujitsu to help kind of transition processes. Um, how did you align with them and kind of talk to me about that relationship? Um, well, we, we align with them because Sam's a close friend, first and foremost. Um, but actually, he was the first, he was up at four or five commando um, up in Arbroath when I started sort of. Uh, you, you know, moving out from the army a little bit into the navy and into the Royal Marines, and you know, so as I went through um, trying to just establish the brand within the military, um, and he was one of the first Royal Marines I ever met um, up in four or five, and um, I remember actually he had just done, I think it was a world record for for rope climbs or something like that, uh, and I was really impressed by him. But just such a nice guy, and we just got on so well from that point. Um, he loved what Beaverfit did, and and you know, we just had that that common sort of ground of, of got on really well. And ever since then, I've sort of everywhere he's gone, we've we followed and, and been with him. Yeah, well, I think another powerful thing is Sam was a, a PTI, wasn't he, in, in the Marines? Right, so yeah. he was a physical training instructor. So the fact that he's choosing your stuff, again, speaks volumes. So 
Um, and another group that I recently became exposed to was uh, 22 Smoke and Aces. I just had Tom Morgan, who's one of their guys, who's a firefighter in um, Devon. Um, yes. So how did you um, have that relationship with Dan, the founder? Um, we got introduced to Dan uh, through another um, Special Forces ex-operator, Oli Ollerton, um, who was one of the Who Dares Wins guys. Um, and actually, they... They did a weekend, so on the farm, we have an area where we've got a, we've got a tower where um, guys can almost come and experience that, that uh, Who Dares Wins weekend, um, whether you're a civilian or, or they do corporate events as well. Really good bunch of guys. And Dan was doing a weekend, and I just um, met him there and then and got on with him very well. And ever since then, we've kept in touch. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a good guy, Dan. And he put, he's the sort of guy that just puts you in touch with everyone and, you know, keep, keeps every, all, the, all the wheels spinning, but he's a great lad. Beautiful. Now, one thing I didn't ask you before, but I need to make sure that we do, aside from actually the, the tactical strength and conditioning equipment that you have, you also have job-specific training containers as well. So tell me about like the, the law enforcement and the fire ones that you have. So um, so the way the company splits is you've got your human performance side, and then we've also got our special operations side. Um, so human performance is obviously anything fitness uh, and SOE, we call it, is really anything tactical training or um, training, not necessarily tactical, but like real event training. So a few examples of that is um, at the minute we're doing a big facility for Suffolk Fire Brigade, which is a cold cut training facility. So essentially what they do is we build this, this, um, this facility out of all different, all containers and different, uh, different ways they lay them. And then we, we knock all the floors out, concrete the floors, and then on the sides, we reinforce them with five mil thick steel um, with 10 mil in between each, each uh, meter, by, meter by meter plate. And they heat these containers up to a certain temperature um, so the, the steel contracts. And then to prevent blowback training, basically, they have a sacrificial panel, which they'll use water jets to cut holes into and then put thermometers in and, and until they get the right temperatures before they can open the doors. So it's to simulate, you know, when you go into a building, obviously you'll know, but um, that's the, that's the idea. So we, we started doing a few of those, <clears throat> those sort of facilities, and then we'll do method of entry uh, facilities, uh, repel towers, um, stuff that simulate uh, subterranean training as well. So, uh, and this really came about from, as we were doing all the fitness side, um, a friend of mine who was um, in the special forces asked actually if we could bring the container that sits on a sits on a small trailer. So it's a mobile container on a trailer. We called it our five foot mobile, but we've now just released a new a new um, whole trailer trailer types, um, a whole new section of trailers which which are um, just opened in the US now and they're going to come across the UK. But at that time. We take it over to this base, put it in their in their range, their live fire shooting range. And at the time, they were doing wad shoot, wad breach, so workout shoot, workout breach. And uh, it was to simulate the guys getting fatigued first of all, and then having to do their their you know their small muscular um, movements, whether that's shooting or whether that's actually smashing through doors. Yeah, and see, I think that's a really important point as well because we have the same in fire. You know, we'll 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 go from the classroom, we'll throw our gear on, and then we'll go do an evolution. And, you know, sometimes that might be sp- supposed to be a high-rise evolution, for example. So, in theory, we should have climbed, you know, 10, 15, 20 flights of stairs before we actually perform the duties. So, 
the I like the trailer element too because you not only have that where you can apply the the workout to the training ground, but also if again space is an issue, you can have that mobile trailer where whether it's you know the annual fitness standards, whether it's just you know rotating through so different fire stations have access to to a gym and they literally can you know move it every day. I think that's another you know just, I mean these are options for people. That's the whole point of this this conversation. But it's another great tool. And if you have like I think you have don't you have a search one of the ones is a, a fire search um box. Have I got that right? Yeah so a confined space box. So yeah. they the confined space is absolutely yeah. Beautiful. So there's all, and you are right the, the trailer, the mobile trailer, the beyond range that we've just brought out is perfect for if you do have space issues. You know, you can put in a space where it's been used, um, well, it's empty, and then take it to another area and or another fire station could use it or another police station could use it. So, yeah, it's a really versatile kit. Beautiful. Well, I want to touch on one more area before we go to some closing questions, but I think this is another, you know, interesting perspective. So, you you do a lot of building still. So, you'll, you'll create workout facilities and, and put roofs over playing fields and that kind of thing. Tell me about um, the NHS during COVID and how you were able to assist there. So when COVID first um, sort of hit the world, I guess, we, uh, everyone came into work. We, we continued to work in the offices as, as normal. We pulled everyone in and we were like, look, you know, our, our commercial gym business is, is not going to be working for a while. Uh, the military, we're going to obviously stand by and, and support in every way we can. Uh, but knowing that potentially some of those budgets might be moved out, um, what else can we do? Like, what else are we good at? So <clears throat> we're good at, we've got a fantastic design. It's like one of our big, I think one of our biggest strengths is uh, how it, how um, how mobile we are within a company, how we can create new ideas and we can bring ideas to life. And one of the guys was like, you know, what about mobile morgues, basically, or container morgues? So we, we got the de- um, designers to design these morgues, refrigerated units um, with with uh, basically levels of rollers, which had then these trays where you'd put bodies on. Um, and so we came up with these ideas and we just came across, uh, it was actually a, a company that um, sells coffins and they had a contract with the NHS to do coffins. It was, a, it was definitely some luck there with it, but um, there was a huge demand, you know, and people wanted and needed and, and were a bit scared of this. So we ended up building a lot of containerized morgues. Um, and we also did... They're like uh, shelter solutions with with a lot of different with a lot of different um, sort of racks full of full of bodies body trays. So it was a really um, you know wasn't the nicest thing to be building by any stretches, but it was a, a necessary that you know we didn't know what, where the world was going to be honest. So it was one of those things where we adapted with the skills we've got. We know we're good at steel. We know we're good at designing, and we know we, we can uh, come up with ideas. So we sort of jumped in where we could and, and found a little bit of a niche in the market. Yeah. No, and it's, again, it shows the, the kind of entrepreneurial innov- innovation element of, you know, of what you guys do. With that being said, just a complete tangent, um, it seems, and this is incredible news, that, that the numbers weren't as bad as we initially thought. So did you see that even in, in through your lens that there wasn't as much of a need for those as, as they originally thought? Absolutely. I, I think, fortunately... Um, they weren't really used. So we, you know, we went to town really building these things up. Uh, and it was a it was a very strange period. The roads were empty. We were driving down to Essex Hospital. We're driving to Birmingham Hospital. Um, wouldn't see anyone put them in. 
And, and I think they were barely used, to be honest. Um, I'm sure they were a little bit, but but not massively. So uh, that was a that was a good news story. And you know, we, we certainly wouldn't have wanted them to be rammed full and be having to load more of them. Yeah, no, I think that's just an important thing for us to hear. I think we're in we're in need of good news, and I think there's a lot of good news. Things weren't as bad. You know, the the medical community got much better at treating the people that were ill. You know, vaccinations, whether people were for or against, have obviously made a difference. So, you know, I think I think we need to hear these these stories where you know there wasn't as much death as we feared, because I think that's a a great positive outcome from this that doesn't seem to be getting a lot of airtime. So <laughs> I always look for those Absolutely. moments. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first question I love to ask people, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we discussed today or completely unrelated. Um, to be honest, I, I like uh, biographies. So maybe it's not everyone's cup of teas, but you know, I like, I like to listen to um, to inspirational people uh, that have done done fas- fascinating things, and, and unsurprisingly, a lot of them are around sports based. So, um, so they could be rugby players, or they they could be endurance athletes in particular, which are my two hobbies. Those are the two things that I uh, I get really into and, and excited by. Um, currently, I'm listening to a um, there's one from Kieran Reed, who is the ex All Black uh, number eight, fantastic read, but it's. I wouldn't say that's everyone's cup of tea. So that's just uh, a bit of when I when I read something, I like to turn off from from most of most of the rest of what I'm up to and just focus in on you know an interest. Beautiful. I heard it. Andre, actually, I have. I just say heard. I actually bought it. I haven't read it yet. But apparently, Andre Agassi's bio is supposed to be one of the best sports bios right. ever written, supposedly. So I'll let you know when I'm done with it. <laughs> um, all right. What about a movie or a film and or a documentary that you love? Um, so movie, I, I like, I like action, I guess. Um, there's a, there's a lot of different movies. Um, Lone Survivor is always good. Uh, it's, a, it's a great, great movie. Um, gets you moving, doesn't it? And, and what those guys had to go through was unbelievable. So I think that's probably the most sort of, again, it's an inspirational one, but it's, uh, one that I certainly enjoy watching. Yeah, no, I actually watched that on Memorial Day with my my son and uh, Marcus is someone I still want to get on the show because to me, the movie was incredible. But when you read the book, there was so much more that the the villagers did, so many more risks that they took um, for this American. So I think that's a part that I'd love to hear more about. All right, well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, <clears throat> do you know what? There's, there's a guy who's truly inspirational guy. There's a guy, Ray Zihab. He's a Canadian. Um, and he's, he's done some phenomenal endurance and phenomenal, um, phenomenal ex- expeditions. He's a world first in a lot of things. But he also, uh, you know, works with us on, on a few different things. But he's a really amazing guy with some incredible stories. He, him and a few guys, they ran across the entire Sahara Desert, um, I think it was 50, 55 miles a day for 110 days. Uh, now I know that he's not got their, um, the first responder background, but just as some, someone who would relate to all sorts of different people, I think he's a very, very inspirational guy. Beautiful. Yeah, and that's the thing with this podcast. I mean, there are just amazing humans all around us. So some are in this space and, and many of the guests aren't. So that sounds like a great, great suggestion. Thank you. 
All right. So then the last question before we make sure people know how to find Beaver Fit and, you know, reach out to you personally. What do you do to decompress when you're not building? I go running, <laughs> running, to be honest. I, you know, we, we, um, during the first lockdown, I did, um, every Friday of, of, of the, um, 12 weeks, I ran a marathon. So, um, it was a marathon a week for 12 weeks. And then this year, um, we've, we've done a marathon at the end of every month. So we get the company involved as well. Um, and anyone who wants to, they can start at a crazy o'clock in the morning and come and run a marathon. And it's, it's a great time, a bit, bit chilled out, you know, quite relaxed with it. As long as we're back at our desk by 11 o'clock, that's the key. And then obviously spending time with my family. Um, got a little boy and a, and a little girl and they certainly keep me busy. Beautiful. You know, this just reminded me, another person I want to reach out to, and I, I think it'd be a little bit harder to get, but Eddie Izzard. Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have this guy who was a stand-up comedian, not known for his his fitness at the time, and then was it thirty marathons in thirty days or something that he did? Yeah, some incredible things he has. Yeah. So again, mental toughness. Um, all right. Well, then. So the last question. So, if people want to find out about Beaver Fit in the the uh, UK side and or the US side, where are the best places to go? Um, <clears throat> there's a website, and then www.beaverfit.com. And then from there, you can either go onto the US or the UK. Uh, Instagram, we're very active on Instagram um, and Facebook and LinkedIn. So uh, for either the US or the UK. Beautiful. And if people want to try and reach out to you specifically, are there any other additional places? Um, I'm on Instagram as well. So uh, Tom Beaver 23 but that's, that's about it, to be honest. It's beautiful. Well, Tom, I just want to say thank you so much. Like I said, when, when I find solutions to some of the issues that that we have in our professions you know whether it's a, a, you know a, a go-to fitness a company excuse me a go-to fitness equipment company or a supplement or clothing you know my goal is to bring people to them you know this is something i know we're going to spend the money so to me if we have you know veteran operated or or um, you know trusted companies that totally understand us then my goal is to try and bring the people to them so they're going to use the same money, same budget that they have and actually buy equipment that's going to be there in five years 10 years and maybe even equipment that might allow them to have a gym where before they didn't think they would be able to so i just want to say thank you so much for taking the time and, and telling your story on the podcast today thank you very much james really appreciate it